doubt is Satan's greatest tool. Indeed, you would expect that when Satan went to tempt a man and his wife who had been formed by God out of the dust of the earth, in whom dwelt the life that had been breathed by the very breath of God, a, a man and his wife who had everything that the earth could offer, a, everything without any drawbacks. There were no roses with thorns. There was no war with the elements. There was no excessive heat or excessive cold. There was no fear of the earth or of the climate or of the animals. Everything that a man could possibly want was handed to him by God in the Garden of Eden. And you would expect that as Satan went to tempt that man for the first time, that he would use his most effective weapon. And that is exactly what he did. For doubt is the greatest tool that Satan has in his arsenal that he uses against the people of this earth. And so tonight I want us to look at the decay of doubt. See if we may examine it so that we may reveal it for what it is and deal with it effectively when Satan tries to use it against us. Notice, first of all, here from Genesis 3, here is the origin of doubt. It is chronicled very easily and very clearly for us, and it is a pattern which Satan has repeated often, and which, if you are the child of God, he has repeated with you as he has sown doubt about God, about your relationship to God in your heart. The very first thing that Satan did, and notice this. This is an excellent message on which to take notes if you're prone to do that kind of a thing. The very first thing that Satan did, which is the first thing that he always does, he cast doubt on the Word of God. Satan had been nearby when God told the man and his wife what to do. Satan knew what God had told them, and yet the first thing that he did was just to cast the very slightest doubt on the truth of what God had said. For he said, has God said that you're forbidden anything in the garden? He knew very well what God had forbidden. He cast doubt on God's word. Now notice, that he did not begin by denying the truth of God's Word. No, not by denying it at first, but by simply casting a shadow of doubt upon it. He made her wonder if she had really heard right when she heard what God had said. Notice then down in verse 4 that it was her response that drew Satan into an open denial. For she decided to play along with the serpent. Now right here, you will cut an interesting contrast is the temptation of Eve and the temptation of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. What Jesus did was say, Satan, no, I won't play your silly games. You're a liar because the word of God says, and then he quoted scripture, which backed up what he believed. But Eve did not do that. She could have said, yes, God has said it, and I believe it, and God cannot tell a lie. But her response to the suggestion of doubt then drew Satan out 
into an open denial. For after she played along with him, then he came out and said, you won't die. In other words, he said, God is trying to put one over on you, sister. Her response drew him into an open denial. And believing Satan rather than believing God, her doubt became unbelief. And unbelief was truly the sin that led to the fall of the human race through Adam and Eve from their position of perfect fellowship with God. Her sin helped to corrupt her husband. And then notice in verse 8, the Word of God, the presence of God, the Word of God represents His presence, His nature. The Word of God sent them hiding. For when then they heard what had been the most precious of all sounds to them, which was the sound of God coming to be with them, when they heard God coming, they ran to hide. Because their sin had made them afraid of God. Verse 10, Adam admits that he was gripped by fear because of his sin when he realized that he had to face the God whom he had disobeyed. Eve admitted down in verse 13 that she had been tricked by the serpent. And yet, it was her own willingness to go along when Satan cast a doubt upon the truth of God that led to her fall. Here is the origin of doubt. It was that day and it remains today the most devastating weapon that Satan uses against the people of God. And then I want you to see the purpose of doubt. What was it that Satan was trying to accomplish? Here he truly won a battle in his war with God, but he will not, cannot, and shall not win the war. But what was the purpose of doubt? Indeed, it accomplished that purpose. Verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 3. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The purpose of doubt is always the same. It is to break our fellowship with God. That's always the purpose of doubt when Satan sows it in our minds. If Satan can but sow a doubt in our hearts as to the goodness of God. If he cannot do that, he will sow a doubt as to the willingness of God to bless us. Failing that, he will sow a doubt as to the power of God to bless us. Satan would have us believe that in this realm, in this earth, God is no match for him. But that's not true. Indeed, it helps us <clears throat> in trying to understand Satan's strategy behind doubt to realize that the devil cannot tell the truth. You know, sometimes I fear we see the devil as using the truth to hurt people. That's not true. The devil cannot tell the truth. Scripture says he is the father of lies. Jesus said he is a liar from the beginning and the truth is not in him. 
One thing that the devil cannot do is speak the truth. He just doesn't know how to do it. And the purpose of doubt is always to break your fellowship with God. Then notice the nature of doubt. And for this, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Two verses from the book of Romans. Now here, Paul is describing the faith that made Abraham the victorious believer in God that he was. So what he is saying refers to the man Abraham. The nature of that, Romans 4, 20 and 21. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. What is the nature of doubt? Doubt is temptation. And temptation is not sin. Often, when I deal with people who are going through periods of doubt, they feel very guilty because of doubt. Do not feel guilty. If you were no threat to Satan and what he wants to do in and around you, he wouldn't bother you. Doubt proves that the devil's after you. And doubt is not sin. It's temptation. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. Notice, however, that doubt persisted in becomes unbelief. And unbelief is sin. In fact, it's the master sin. It's the only sin that condemns anybody to hell, unbelief. You see how closely akin the devil's master tool is to the devil's master sin. For doubt is temptation, not sin. But when we persist in doubt, when we agree with Satan's suggestions of doubt, when we begin to agree with him that God is not trustworthy, then doubt gives birth to unbelief. And it is the master sin of the human race. In contrast to that, Paul in Romans 4 has told us about Abraham, who did not waver in unbelief, but rather grew strong in faith being persuaded that if God promised something, he could deliver it. Have you ever found yourself knowing that what you sought the Lord for was right? Knowing that what you prayed for, or either on your behalf or on behalf of some other person, was the good thing? But then catching yourself saying, I wish God would, but I don't think he will. James, the half-brother of Jesus in his letter said, if a man doubts or is double-minded when he prayed, let him, not, let him not suspect that he'll receive anything from God. For the double-minded man, James says, is unstable in all his ways. There's one question, is God able? If God is able, and if your request squares with the Word of God, 
then God not only can, but God will act as you claim His promises. The nature of doubt, it is temptation. But when we persist in it, it becomes unbelief, which is the master sin. Now, if Abraham could believe God to give him a son when he was a hundred and his wife was ninety, can we not believe God also? And then see with me the fruit of fear. The fruit of doubt, rather. The fruit of doubt is fear. Fear is the most devastating of all the emotions. Fear is unreasoning. Fear very easy gives way to panic. Fear very easily gives way to an unreasoning, unreasonable, panicky kind of fear that will not be satisfied. The fruit of doubt is always fear. And listen, fear is always the symptom of a heart that is not set on God. Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose heart is stayed on thee. You may know whenever you are afraid that it is because you have agreed with suggestions of doubt as to the trustworthiness of God. Because fear is the fruit of doubting God. Scripture also says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Then notice the object of doubt. If you will examine doubt, you will find that it always has one object. That object is salvation. Either your own salvation or the salvation of another person. Remember that the devil is a liar, the father of lies, that he cannot tell the truth. Thus, the devil will always tell the saved that they are lost. Sometimes I get a quizzical look when I tell somebody that the fact that they doubt their salvation is a very healthy sign. But you see, date the devil, when he comes in tempting us to doubt God, tells the saved that they are lost. But the devil also tells the lost that they are saved. For he cannot tell the truth. But doubt, in its essence, always comes down to dealing with salvation. Either your own or someone else's. If you doubt this, look at the temptation of Jesus. I mentioned it a moment ago in Matthew chapter 4. 
Now, in Matthew 4, you would think that the devil, as he did when he tested that sinless man and woman, Adam and Eve, would also throw his greatest tool at the Lord Jesus. And that is exactly what he did. For in Matthew 4, as we read about the temptation of Jesus, the tool of the devil is the same. It is doubt. Notice verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Verse 6, And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Even when he tempted Jesus, the thing that the devil used was doubt, and he used doubt as to the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. In other words, he tried to make Jesus doubt his own relationship to God. The last temptation of Jesus was when he hung on the cross and Satan through the mouths of those around the cross, the chief priests and their cronies tried to tempt him to come down from the cross. The devil, by the time he nailed Jesus to the cross, knew he'd made a mistake. And he tried to get him down. Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43. Here's doubt again. 41 to 44. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. And here it is, if he takes pleasure in him. There it is again. If he takes pleasure in him. For he said... I am the Son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Both the first and the last temptations of Jesus Christ involved doubt and doubt as to the goodness of God as to his relationship to God. In Matthew 11, we see that even the best of men are not immune from doubt for here is John the Baptist, who was conceived three months earlier than his cousin in the flesh, Jesus. Here is John the Baptist, who was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Here is John the Baptist, who said, There is one mightier than I who cometh after me, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, who looked over the hill there by Jordan and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now you see old John has been isolated. Herod has taken him prisoner. He languishes now in a prison cell awaiting his death. And the tempter comes to John the Baptist and he says, Are you sure about that Jesus? Matthew 11, 1 to 4. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. 
Now when John in prison heard the works of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or shall we look for someone else? Even the best of men are not immune to doubt. Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, had seen everything that Jesus had done. He had been with him for three years, and yet he had caved in when Jesus was crucified. Three days later, some of the people whom Thomas loved and trusted more than anybody on the face of the earth told him that Jesus was alive. But Thomas had so completely agreed with the doubt the devil had sown in his heart that though his best friends told him that Jesus was alive, he wouldn't believe it until he saw it for himself. You see, this matter of relationship to God demands real and personal experience, and that's good. Else we all would be prone to try to live on the basis of somebody else's experience, and relating yourself to God, you cannot do that. The object of doubt, remember, is always in some way to cast doubt as to salvation, either your own or someone else's. And then notice the means of doubt. There is one way the devil goes about sowing doubt. It is always the same. The means of doubt is accusation. Accusation. Just a few months ago, I took... Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, and I went through the entire Bible looking up every use of the word accuse, every form of that word, accuse, accusing, accused, accusation, and every time that word occurs in the Bible, it is sin. Every time. The term or any form of it Accuse, accused, accusing accusation. Every time it occurs, it is sin. Clearly and unmistakably. Should this surprise us when the very name that we have come to give the devil, Satan, means the accuser? The devil always uses accusation to sow doubt. You say, well, doesn't God tell people they're wrong? You bet he does, but there's a whole world of difference between accusation and conviction. And I will, appoint, I will point out to you that accusation is the realm of the devil and conviction is the realm of the Holy Spirit. Accusation produces despair. Conviction produces repentance. And God has never released his function of conviction to anybody but the Holy Spirit. Everywhere accusation occurs in Scripture, it's sin. Satan will look at you and he will accuse you. He will point to your wicked heart. He will point to your pitiful works. He did that to Moses. God was getting ready to deliver Israel. And Satan accused Moses and Moses said, But Lord, I'm not good enough to do what you want me to do. He will point to your pitiful works, your wicked heart. And he will point to your past or your present sins or the sins of someone else. 
But there is good news. For Scripture says that doubt may be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ just as the sin debt is paid by the blood. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even unto death. There is one final thing to be dealt with. We would be miserable if we could identify doubt and couldn't do anything about it. Its origin, we have seen. Its purpose is to break fellowship with God. Its nature, it is temptation. But persisted in, it becomes the sin of unbelief. The fruit of doubt is fear. The object of doubt is salvation. And the means of doubt is accusation. There is one matter to be dealt with, and that is victory over doubt. And that is had by faith. Faith is God's remedy for doubt. 1 John 5, 4, Scripture says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You say, well, that's easy enough to say, but how do I have it? All right, here it goes. One, two, three. Number one, recognize that doubt, when it becomes unbelief, is sin. When doubt becomes unbelief, it is sin. Number two, having recognized doubt persisted in as unbelief, having realized that you have begun to sin through unbelief, then confess that sin. For 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number three, you overcome doubt the same way that Jesus Christ did through the Word of God. Neither prayer nor the right relationship to God's Word is enough alone. There must be the prayer of confession. We must stay confessed up to date and we must be properly related to God's Word. Jesus, at every point that He was tempted, had one way that He withstood the temptation and that was through God's Word. Now let me ask you a simple question. If Jesus Christ had to have the Word of God to overcome temptation, what chance do you have without it? Just a brief look at some Scripture that overcomes doubt. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in Thee, in God whose Word I praise. In God I have put my trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. But now, thus saith the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. A promise is valid to every one of you and me as it is to Joshua. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.